welcome to On Fighting in Thailand, best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people. Today we will be talking to Tony Myers, who is a very, very experienced judge and referee from the UK. Spent a lot of time in Thailand, especially as one of the first UK practitioners to come to the land of smiles. And he brought a lot of knowledge back home with him to the UK. I think one of my first sort of interactions with Tony was through his scoring website. Uh, which is very informative and very interesting. He's done a number of academic papers, one of which I remember being the impact of crowd noise on judging and in terms of home field advantage. So there is a bias for judging. And according to his research, and again, you'll need to double check with this, it's about a half a point bias towards the hometown and why judges will sort of swing that way is because of the impact of crowd noise. So a very important takeaway there, how important it is to be cheering for your fighters in order to sometimes sway those very, very close decisions. In this episode, though, we talk more about the history of the sport, especially in the UK, and go through his timeline of starting out in karate and then moving into Muay Thai. Uh, we also hit on some notable names, William Hastings and, of course, Dean James. So without further ado, the interview with Tony Myers. Thank you, Tony, for taking your time out today. I know you're a busy man. I really appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. And it's always a pleasure to speak. So you've obviously been in the sport for a very long time, uh, since the 70s. And you first went to Thailand, I believe, in the 80s. Uh, what were your beginnings, though? You began in karate and were doing some stand-up striking and sort of wrestling, correct? Yeah, so, yeah, that was right. Yeah, so karate background, really. And that was, I guess, early 70s. Um, at that time, karate was sort of the... And kung fu had just started to come in. But uh, I was doing karate, Shotokan karate. And... I guess I wanted to make it more realistic, so we were mixing boxing with it, so it was a bit of a, a hybrid between boxing and karate, but also did a little bit of jiu-jitsu, Japanese jiu-jitsu, not, not to any extent, but we then tried to incorporate that. So I guess it, was a, it looked a little bit like a bad version of MMA, you know, a less skilled, polished version of MMA at the time. Um, from then, it was a number of guys trained with me and were interested in competing and we were looking for outlets and I guess had there been MMA then that would have been an outlet but it was looking to see where um, and this was sort of the end of the 80s sort of we put I decided with a with a friend to put on some shows and to contact people who at that time were fighting so there was a scene then um, in the Midlands and in Manchester and also in London but at that time I, I recruited from both areas from Manchester the Midlands and um, London, and we had fighters on there. And I guess the fighters I had competed. What I was most impressed with, I guess, at the time was some fighters from Tony Moore's gym. Technically, not necessarily. I mean, there were some great fighters. Steve Aldenton uh, comes to mind, and some others. They were, you know, quite well-known fighters at that, at that point. And I, I had done some training with what then was freestyle, became Trojan, who had a stronger with, link with later on. At that point, I decided to contact Tony Moore, who brought um, a guy called Paul Bates down, who had actually fought some ties at that time, and sort of went up to do some training. My guys at the time looked a bit like kickboxers with knees rather than really Muay Thai-style fighters. And it was the contacts I had with Tony, really, that led me to Thailand. And it was, a, it was the early 90s I first ventured to Thailand with two fighters I had at the time. That was uh, Yuk Fung and Will Hastings, both who were competing at that point. And we ended up at a, a gym south of Bangkok, Bampei. We, we actually constructed, hadn't had foreigners there at that point. We, had, we helped construct the ring. We slept on camp beds with mosquito nets over. So it wasn't particularly uh, set up at that point for foreigners. And uh, the gym we trained with actually were operated outside of the, the coaches' um, house it was the, the gym was actually his garden i think 
Uh, Tongi's name was, and I think later on he became mayor of the area. But he had a guy who was fighting Lumpini, and the, you know, the, they were very friendly, and it was it was a nice time to sort of you know very accommodating. They brought all the champions in for us to look at, and and so it was that that's really the, the first exposure to to Muay Thai, and that really was for me really great because it was sort of I don't know we tried to using martial arts we tried to make things work the karate things work but this did work you know it was all very sort of made real sense and from then on went back to Thailand in Chiang Mai the, the following year and then I guess the turning point for me I get went with Yuk uh, Fung again um, uh, the turning point with me was a contact that Tony Moore gave me which was uh, Chok Chai Chana Kutsuwan who was that, that time at Pinsin Chai Jin, mm-hmm. uh, his nickname Pimu, and I contacted him. I'd gone actually to, uh, I guess, the usual sort of haunts of foreigners, uh, Kaosan Road, and contacted him from there. He said, look, come across. It was um, situated near Nawamin. So we, I went across, stayed in there, he put me up in an apartment, mm-hmm. and, and I trained at the gym, which was hugely impressed with Pinsin Chai Jim at the time. I think it had about six champions, and had a, a great history of fighters up to that point as well. So a very young Thailand Pinsin Chai, who's you know, still a coach and, and was a successful champion, but but lots of others, including some older boxers at the time, Sanchen Narapai, who was a multiple champion, and um, Berglerk as well at that time. So there were, there were a range of fighters at that point. There was about six champions, but also some former champions. So it was a great time to, to go there at the beginning of the 90s and see... I guess what some people consider to be one of the golden eras of Muay Thai and see the training and it was the, the gym at that time, and I think it still is, sort of backs on from um, General Pinson Charles, the owner's house and garden. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, it was, it was Pimu, I was impressed with for his technical, I guess, attention to detail. Um, so he was using all these very top boxes to illustrate points, but it was his technical detail. And also he was very amenable and he was sort of telling me about the scoring because i was interested i'd I'd come from boxing but i boxed minimally but i had boxed Mm -hmm. and that that, i guess as a child what i was interested in watching so i was interested how when he took me to lumpini for example and lads and mern how were they scoring the fights what were they doing so he spent a long time you know making notes about the techniques in the day and then afterwards about um how things were scored and that i guess was the start a more real interest in the technical aspects and also the scoring aspects of Muay Thai. Mm-hmm. And what was the scene, I guess, like, uh, because you were one of the earlier foreigners and definitely early uh, UK people to go over to Thailand. What was Thailand like at the time? And, you know, like you said before, you were also there basically during the golden era when Kinsen Chai was a notable gem. Obviously a great time for me. I think it was much less commercial generally. I think the Muay Thai scene, whereas now I think Muay Thai gyms realize mm-hmm. the, the potential for, for foreigners to, you know, to come in. Um, at that time, they were not suspicious, but they were, they were, they were welcome. But it was, was also they, with some why, you know, so why if you've got a good job, are you coming to a Muay Thai gym to learn Muay Thai, you know, yeah, it was a, for them it was a job. And that, so it was, um, yeah, they were, got on really well with them and, and had relationships like Thailand came to my house many, you know, a number of times years later. And, you know, we, we've had a relationship ever since with, with some of the other boxers and some, some of the other gyms Pimu took me to afterwards. But um, I think Thailand was less commercial. It was generally an interesting place, particularly traveling around Thailand. I think it was, um interesting to go to i think it was probably cheaper <laughs> i remember going with just <laughs> with 200 uk pounds and that was for you know that was for a couple of months yeah. and managed to make that last i don't know <laughs> that wouldn't be the case now i didn't have to pay for training yeah. there was no pain for training or anything it was really no no, no wow. not at that point it was just training well, it was probably what 50 50 baht to the pound at that point probably yeah it might have even been a point yeah it might have even been at some points, even less, but yeah, yeah, it was cheap anyway. 45.50, which is quite a lot. That's a lot of uh, sticky rice per pound. Yeah, I remember, I remember that first time it was about we were, we were budgeting because we were a bit naive and we didn't book a, a return flight. And the time we wanted to go back, it was quite busy. 
we really were on a tight budget. I think we managed to live on about 30p a day for food and passports. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's still a decent amount of sticky rice. You can get some curry and, you know, lad cow, it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it was. So you were there. How long were you there for uh, when you made these trips? I used to go, I, I, again, I worked in education, so um, I was able to take a fair chunk. So sometimes a month, sometimes two months, and I'd go each mm. year I went for a long time, you know, for sometimes twice a year, but generally in the summer months in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. So sometimes it'd be rainy season in Thailand. It was, it was usually between sort of uh, June and September period, really. Mm -hmm. Oh, were you fighting or were you just training and sort of looking at things? No, I was just training. I was already into my 30s when I went. So I was already, mm -hmm. particularly when I went to Pintin Chai Gym, um, I thought, you know what, the, the standards just, yeah. you know, I'm more interested in learning how to teach it because I just don't think, mm -hmm. um, in all honesty, at that age and my previous experience, I would, be, you know, the, the guys were just levels ahead of me and I thought, it's a super chance to learn, and that's where I think I'll be able to mm -hmm. use that and apply it into coaching rather than me competing and fighting. Obviously, I kicked pads and did all the clinching and mm -hmm. the rest of the training, but you know, in all in all honesty, um, that was the way I thought about it. So I, I boxed as it in my twenties, but I just thought by the time I was, I think by the time I went to Pinsin Chai, I was probably 34, mm -hmm. you know, would have been fine if I'd have been competing. Mm -hmm. Up into training in Muay Thai, up until then, it would have been a great chance to sort of polish those skills and go on. But I really felt I needed to learn all the fundamentals or relearn all the fundamentals and what I thought I knew prior to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. There was also not the same level of opportunities for foreign fighters to correctly be matched up as well. No, I had I, later on. Obviously, I had a number of fighters who went to be matched, but they were mm -hmm. really through through my coach Pimu, who, who managed to mm -hmm. get you know, get good matches for them at the stadiums and and in pet fights in the, the north, etc. And then when you would go back um, to the UK, what was the scene like, especially during these early trips? What were you bringing back, and how was the UK Muay Thai scene developing? At that point, it looked a different sport, in all honesty. It was, I think, influenced strongly by kickboxing. Um, many shows had to incorporate, just to, to, to get enough fights on for the public to watch, had to incorporate kickboxing. Some of the referees and officials were from kickboxing or full-contact karate backgrounds. So I think the scoring and the way that the techniques were delivered looked quite different. There was also some Dutch influences, you know, so again, with the Kaik Shinkai from you know the links to Holland with Kaik Shinkai, so it, it looked different. And what was done in Thailand was you know it didn't look like the same sport in, in all honesty at some points. But I was interested in teaching and you know implementing the knowledge that I'd gained. So I was also sort of commenting on, hang on, are we doing the right scoring? You know, is it are we doing the best thing we can here in the UK? Um, at that point, I was part of the British Thai Boxing Council. I think was the uh, Tony Moore was the president. I think I was the vice president at some point and the treasurer at other points. And at that point in the UK, there was a there was a move, so probably 91, if my memory serves me correctly. We were trying to get recognised by the Sports Council in the UK. And we, there were several of us who went to the Sports Council. Um, some of those were kickboxers. That's for those doing Muay Thai at the time. We represented different organisations. And, and so I was representing the British Thai Boxing Council at that time. Mm. We were not successful. We're trying to get a hybrid, and I don't think that was necessarily the best approach. And I also think if we'd have been more coordinated, we could have chosen some better representatives to go because I don't think everyone there representing were that used to dealing with um, public officials. And I think, you know, we really probably missed an opportunity. But they, at that point, they didn't recognise, they chose not to recognise the sport and it was an ongoing it's still to this day the sports council don't recognize the sport in different countries associated do so ireland do republic of ireland do um scotland almost did at some point um and obviously france and other countries but the uk as a whole still doesn't um i think it's developed on from then i think you know there is now ifma and there's some links with you know the amateur events at the amateur sport for example but um yeah you know, I think it's a different dynamic now professionally across the world. 
than it was at that point. But uh, so, yeah, as far as the techniques go and as far as the way the sport looked and was officiated and the way that people trained was quite different in Thailand. Yeah, Prachas. Yeah. And then so it was, when did um, you open the gym uh, in Birmingham and how did that get started? Uh, Originally, it was, as I say, I had these shows in the very early, sorry, the late 80s. So the gym started in the early 90s. So really, I guess we'd started the gym just prior to me going to Thailand. So that meant really when I'd come back with the technique of that year, it all changed. This is what we do now. You know, so the, the guys at the time training were going, oh, we were doing this, but now we changed. And so I was constantly trying to say, we straight away anything that you know previously I'd done that I was mistaken in delivering would change. So I'm sure the guys at the time adapted really well. They did very well um, <laughs> competitively at that time. Given the nature of the way the sport developed and the gyms I'd gone to, um, Pinsing Chai, for example, clinch work in knee was quite strong at Pinsing Chai and, and not so strong in the UK. So I think with the gym at that time had a reputation for clinch work in knee, and they were very successful. Will Hastings, I think, in '96 was sort of won a British title um, in Birmingham, and that was on Steve Logan's show at the Tower Ballroom, which was a venue that was quite popular at that period. And you know, for a period after, and Damien Trainer, if you spoke to him, he would have fought there lots of times. In fact, I would have refereed Damien lots of times from a young lad at that, that venue. Um, and Will fought, and that was the first time a British title had been fought with elbows, and. Uh, Will won that title, and he, he went on to have about 60 fights. So I think Combat Magazine, or the B2B, voted him Best Fighter of the Year at that year. You know, it was he got a good run at that point. And he was, I guess, the best fighter, the most experienced fighter of that gym. His weight was quite good, and he fought in Holland, France, etc., um, around the UK. Um, Yuki Fung, who was fighting slightly before Will, was a bit smaller and had to actually have... Uh, fights we got as much much bigger so he um you know it was more difficult to match i guess he was in the 50s and then you know lots of 53 54 so he's fighting guys sometimes 10 k's heavier to get fights mm-hmm. um, and there was a few people you know we had some that entered amateurs we had you know there was a yeah we went i, I went as british mm-hmm. uh, team coach in the mm-hmm. 90s um but also to be honest that was the Republic of Ireland joined us, even though they wouldn't have been part of the British team. They sort of were part of the group. They wouldn't want to be called a British team, and they weren't. But um, and that was might have been again, might have been '96. And um, we, we it was in Utrecht, and uh, we competed against you know, in the amateurs. And there wasn't the same. There wasn't the shin pads on then. There was still uh-huh. the head guards and the body shields on. And the year after, I went again with the Irish team. Actually, there was no. I didn't. Wasn't with the. Mm-hmm. British team then I was with the Irish team and Craig O'Flynn won a silver so I called Craig I was only a couple of lads who, who went out and I went with him because Anthony the, his coach at the time couldn't go out and I knew him quite well so I went out with them so from then I really didn't focus on amateur sport but it was a great chance to go to Thailand and compete and referee a refereed at the later on for IFMA at the, on TV and Thai TV which was you know so it gave me some nice opportunities even though I was and still am more focused on the professional sport coaching the professional sport did you referee for the wmc then because you were you did some ifma stuff yeah so i refereed so i did the ifma training at that time i think original the original courses were actually very good um yeah and i was qualified by the wmc and uh yeah, so i refereed not not in thailand for the wmc though i didn't referee in thailand i refereed in the uk on wmc shows at that time um yeah, late the WMC I believe really sort of took off in the late nineties and went into like at its heyday was like in the early two thousands with a big presence mainly in Australia but also had a bit of a presence in the UK. Yeah, I went to the early meetings. I think maybe ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine. I went to a meeting and uh, you know a couple of meetings. I represented the BTBC anyway. At World Point Council meetings. In fact, one I still use some of the videos from that time. I think a very young Anawak Kausam Rick was demonstrating some techniques. And, oh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. and so, it, you know, at that time they were videoing what scores and what pins. So it was still a use. I, I use that footage in some of the, the training courses for because it was quite <laughs> good. You know, they, they actually stood out in front and would sort yeah. of explaining things. So, uh, yeah, so I went mm-hmm. to those. And um, I think it maybe 
yeah, 98, 99, maybe a couple of years, uh, maybe 2002. Uh, you sort of shifted more into doing referee stuff um, in the late 90s then? Well, it, I w- it wasn't shifted more to, it was in, I was doing it as well, you know, so I'd already started doing some refereeing prior to really training properly in Thailand. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it was just alongside coaching. So then I'd be coaching a couple of different gyms. In fact, at some point, three different gyms. Um, mm-hmm. There's my own gym, Trojan Gym in Cheltenham and Trojan Gym in Wolverhampton. And I was refereeing and judging as well. So I, I guess in the in the 90s, Mm-hmm. Maybe ninety-eight. I had my coach come to the UK, so Pimu, and we did seminars, Muay Thai seminars, but also started doing judging seminars and referee seminars at that point. Initially without any assessment at all. It was just literally this is how the sport's done in Thailand, this is how it's scored, you know, as a matter of almost a matter of interest rather than training people. And then it became more I carried on doing those to train people how to judge and referee. Um, but again, no assessment initially. And it was only when I realized actually some people who sat through the course still were not bringing anything or not able to apply it, I guess. So we then started doing some testing to see whether people, you know, how many fights people could score. Quite, I guess, a simplistic method of showing people 10 fights and saying a different thing, you know, particular things, emphasizing particular things that were keen scoring and saying, you know, who do you, who do you think's won? Why? And that, that was the basis of it, really. Uh, the refereeing, we, we less developed in assessing the refereeing because I think it's a one-off. It was less easy to do, even though we that, at that point you had sort of simulated fights and some people would be trying to cheat and throw themselves on the floor. Could you protect the box or could you move around? You know, which was actually sort of done in some of the training in Thailand too. But it was more like, given given the scenario over a period of time, it was more a competency-based thing to say, you know, when this happens, have you demonstrated you can deal with this appropriately? So can you count appropriately? Can you protect someone on the floor? Can you break boxes on the ropes in the centre of the ring? Or can you separate boxes correctly without them hitting each other or hitting you? And that type of thing. I was lucky enough, again, as well, to have some some good... Um, Pimu actually was very good himself, um, but he also had really good links. One Chai Prousey from uh, Radzman Lerner, who's, I think, voted Referee of the Year in 2003. He, I think, teaches boxers now. Um, he was in the Air Force uh, as well. And he came over to the UK and was, you know, instrumental in sort of teaching some some things and uh, guiding me. Um, I interviewed lots of people, referees from Lumpini and... Um, Radina Bang Chan at the time, I think it was Hedda Lumpini, judging and refereeing, I interviewed him. Um, I interviewed Sakchai Tapsawan, who was, I think, uh, at that point, um, head of the Muay Thai Council. Do you, do you happen to still have access to those interviews? I've got some written stuff from a, I use it from a PhD thesis on, because it's been, I, I interviewed them in the sort of early 2000s. I don't know whether I've got the video, I don't know whether I've got the actual um, audio, but I've got what I pulled out of it because it was part of the PhD thesis. So I started the PhD in 2001. So I was sort of qualitative study, actually, that formed part of a chapter, which I didn't publish and hasn't been published. Perhaps when I get a chance to, um, I will. Because I think it was quite interesting, some of those conversations and but the idea was to contrast it with interviews i've done and my experiences in the uk sort of say how are these things different and then testing the the, the theory really that you know you can be more consistent if you apply this particular approach um yeah so they were they were i guess instrumental and another one later on uh colonel boonsong kurt Mani, who was again a um a very famous um, referee, and he, I think, when when Lumpini for a period of time, Lumpini changed rules where they didn't allow people to grab around the body. To me, and and then they they sort of brought all the heads of the different stadiums together, and and uh, Colonel Boonsong Kirkman, he was the chair of that group, and they sort of went back to the what you know the. So he, he was obviously quite respected. He was very good, actually. We spent a, spent a day with him looking at He looked at me refereeing. He was making points about, you know, so he was very good 
went to, he went to the came to the gym to you know because he, he used to be a teacher and my coach at the time for you know in the early days um so yeah that was where i got into sort of trying to look at the technical aspects and what was there and we kept to be honest got videos from training videos from referee training videos from lumpini i had a book translated from their training manual at the time translated into english to try to use as materials i guess for the for bodies um you know to to, to deliver stuff to, to try and be as authentic as possible um and to you know both technically and and you know in terms of the rules Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And you really started after 2000, after your PhD, you really started to do a lot of academic work as well. Uh, in 2007, you did uh, the political bias in Muay Thai. Uh, you know, you had the keynote speaker at the Danish uh, Muay Thai Federation, uh, the cultural differences in judging Muay Thai again in 2007. Um, basically, you did a lot of academic work on the sport into like 2012, 2013, and 14. Can you talk about that period and what you were trying to accomplish and what was happening in the UK at the time as well? As always, if you'd like to follow me, you can do so on Instagram, Matt Lucas Muay Thai. I always respond to messages there. I also have the website matt-lucas.com or email me at a.matt.lucas at gmail.com. Thanks to all the people that have supported me so far, sharing the podcast, leaving reviews. If you'd like to leave a review, that would be super helpful. You can do so on the iTunes stores. After years of hard work, studying, and being in the game, I publish I'm Fighting in Thailand, a guide to the sport in the motherland is a Muay Thai encyclopedia. It goes over scoring, matchmaking, picking gym, fight styles, gambling, Muay Thai culture, and more. It contains a series of interviews with long-term expat fighters, including Michael Savas, Willie Whipple, Lisa Brealey, Angela Chang, and others. It is a great guide, educates, and helps guide careers by helping save fighters from costly mistakes. It is a definitive guide and is available on Amazon as an ebook and in print. So go check it out. I'm fighting in Thailand, a guide to the sport in the motherlands. Yeah, so it was, I mean, right from 2001, really, I started doing academic, you know, with the PhD. And some of these studies were, uh, were, were out of that PhD. So it was the idea of, uh, I'd gone to the IFMA, or several times gone to IFMA World Championships, and I, I I had a feeling that there may be some nationalistic bias. I wasn't particularly thinking people were de deliberately biased, but and I think it was offset by the number of judges they had. So I don't yeah. think it actually mm -hmm. influenced results because they used to have about five judges rather than three. Um, but I wanted to investigate that. And I investigated, so, so initially as part of the PhD study, the published study just looks at nationalistic bias, but the PhD extended that a bit further. So I looked at shared language bias, and noticed the same effect. So essentially, my conclusions in the PhD was actually there wasn't any deliberate bias, but there was a bias, uh, but that was offset by the number of judges. And it was, I, I guess, because I was working in academia, um, it was natural to want to know it a little bit more, but also to sort of challenge my own positions. Is this true or not true? You know, over my... Know, and my anecdotal experience is really reflected in stronger evidence, I guess. Um, and so particularly with judging, and there was a big debate at the time about, you know, we've been doing the sport a long time in the UK since the 70s, we're not really going to change it, was one, one view, and another view was we should be changing it, we should be making it more like Thailand. There was obviously then already commercial interests in Muay Thai in England, and there's some inertia uh, to, to not change, and some, you know, so it, yeah, it, there was a, all sorts of political reasons for various things, but in the end, you know, things did change and, um, you know, it became people took on board, you know, put, took on board some of the ideas and, you know, I think things, you know, the training came through and new people, you know, I'm, ne I'm never sure. I've, certainly some people who are in the sport a long time decided to change and they helped me. Uh, Darren, Darren Phillips, for example, had trained and been, you know, he's one of the early coaches who came down to bring fighters in the, in the 80s when I, brought, uh, when, I, when I put the first shows on. And later on, he, you know, we had a, an email exchange and then discussions and became a friend. 
but he was one who was really sort of initially of the old school of Muay Thai in the UK, I guess. And he was one who was very passionate in the end, promoted, you know, how, it, you know, the sort of the newer ways that we were trying to introduce that were more like Thailand. So they really were, were instrumental in changing other views. Otherwise, I might have had a, a more difficult job to get people to reconsider things. But the, in a way, the academic research was to support those arguments. You know, people saying, well, it's not really, you know, using a holistic system that's used in Thailand isn't really that scientific. And, you know, so we're applying more. But actually, when you, what, you know, the studies we did, for example, one study was to let's have a look at the Thais and how consistent they are. Let's have a look at how consistent we are in the UK. Obviously, we can't say one's right. It's about what, you know, it's a construct, sports constructed. You know, it's a socially constructive thing. And so, it, but we can say, well, people can be more consistent. And if you're more consistent, that has benefits. People who are, co- you know, who are training, the coaches and officials, if it's more consistent, we've got a chance to change things in a particular direction and so potentially to get more skillful in something. So we initially looked, I think the first of the studies was a sort of a multiple study uh, thing. The first of the studies was just to compare Thailand with the UK and the Thais were considerably more consistent. But the arguments could be, well, what's the cause of that? Well, that could just be that they are professionals. They are working together a lot. They're working together in a stadium. Is, is, is it to do with that and not to do with the system they use, for example? So then it was, well, let's try and use, try and train the group, a group of UK judges in that system as much as we can and see then how they perform. Do they, is, does the performance and the consistency improve? And actually they trained over a year and consistency did improve dramatically really and, and more, more in line with Thailand. Not so much in the actual points, but in terms of agreeing who won the fight. The actual points, I think the, system, the way that Thais were judging at the time was slightly different in terms of awarding points at the end of the fight. They were necessarily in round by round scoring, which we were doing and continued to do in the UK, but the consistency was high. It was 90-odd percent, 97 percent. So that supported, I guess, that was another piece in the jigsaw puzzle to, to support um, the way that the sport might benefit from being scored the way the ties do, or, or at least based on the way that ties do. And that led to some things like going to other countries, so Canada, States, um, Denmark that you mentioned, Etc. across the um, Republic of Ireland, Scotland, the UK. And that came from there. In terms of, it didn't finish in 2014, to be honest. So it's, uh, it's, it's continuing. It's just that I have to do other things as well. So I've got to do other research stuff. So we've got a few projects ticking over. So mental toughness in Muay Thai. Look, we've collected lots of data with uh, Stefan Strottmeyer from the States. Um, you know, he came over, you know, to talk about judging and, you know, we've got a long central project on that as well on judging on the effects of commentary effects. We've got data still, but that's got to be written up. Commentary effects of, you know, what the commentator, how the commentator might shape someone's influence of or influence on deciding how they, who they think's won or the fairness of the decision given. Um, and uh, a biomechanics study that's sort of been paused for COVID, but then will carry on, which is sort of looking at technique and what aspects of technique relate to power in different techni- different techniques. So it's ongoing, but it, yeah, published studies stopped around 2013-14, can't remember the exact date. I think the last of the studies was a, a sort of looking at comparing techniques delivered in Thailand and the UK pre-change of rules. So it wasn't, and so probably it needs a follow-up study to say, did the rules make a difference? Or did actually the rules change what we did in the UK? Anecdotally, they did. Uh, but whether they did, you know, in more sort of objective measures, I don't know. But we, you know, I suspect that would be the case. But it's a follow-on study, certainly. Yeah, uh, Damien Trainer in the interview with him, he definitely made, you know, suggested that things had changed uh, by them because of the sort of migration of people back and forth and just people's understanding of the scoring system. I think that's true. I think the, the opening up Thailand made a great difference, and the fact that people were more willing to change the way the sport was judged. And um, yeah, so I think that, that made a big difference. And uh, you went to Philadelphia in 2015 or so with to do a seminar with Stefan Strammeyer or he came over? I, I didn't go to Philadelphia. Oh, okay, no, he okay. came over. Stefan came over. I went mm-hmm. to New York um, 
you you worked with the New Yorker and New Jersey Commission, maybe correct? Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. So it was working with the commission, and we put together mm -hmm. some unified rules at the time um, mm -hmm. with the commission. Um, Stefan, Stefan was also mm -hmm. part of that group, um, but Stefan came over to the UK um, with um, to, to look at judging. Um, at the time, he also did some judging, I think, on the um, mm -hmm. Brian Calder's show um, at that point. So he, he yeah, he, he came over and they were looking, you know, so he, he already was an academic researcher, researcher, I think, injuries and done some stuff on injuries in Muay Thai uh, as well. But obviously his interest was in. So he originally took over the idea. It was that we'd formed the, the what was called the IBMTO, and still is called the IBMTO at that point, the Independent Board of Muay Thai Officials, which we wanted to we wanted to separate from organising bodies and say, look, anybody, whatever group you're with, you can employ these officials if you want to. That was the idea of it originally. And Stefan came over and opened the USA version of that. I think he had there was different challenges in the states. So I think. Um, he wasn't able to get into some of the, the athletic commissions. And so in the end, it's a different route with the, with the amateur. You know, he thought there was a better angle. So he changed the, the name of it and changed slightly the direction. But yeah, using some of the basic principles has continued to, to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, switching a little bit over from your judging and academic work into your actual in-the-ring experience, the referee stuff, when, what shows have you worked on? Uh, when did you really start beginning refereeing? Um, started in the, the sort of early 90s um, and <laughs> refereed on lots of different shows. I can't remember how many in, in the UK and in Ireland and Thailand. A couple of times it was televised in Thailand, but um, mm -hmm. a Kazakhstan as well. Um, so it was, yeah, so right, right from, I guess it's, when I was coaching, what I, you know, what what looked a bit more like Muay Thai, I, I was also refereeing uh, and judging, and again trying to polish those things. So constantly going back to Thailand, constantly getting feedback um, on what my coach would come over every year at that point. Sometimes a couple of times a year and give feedback. He'd bring boxes with him and get feedback on my performance. He'd be saying, "Oh, that wasn't very good. You need to do this, and you need to be quicker on that," or mm -hmm. etc. So you know, I got. I, I think it was very useful. For me, and I obviously go back to to some of the people he brought over and were teaching. But I think that constant feedback is really very useful. You know, somebody at ringside saying you need to do this or this is how you do it in Thailand was very useful. So lots of all, all the main shows, so I refereed lots of lots of people from Thailand, Pinsin Chai, Duo, Kongudom, um, Liam Harrison many times, Damien many many times, um, Sanchai. Uh, Sanchai a couple of times, um, other ties, lots of ties who came over, including a Thai in Thai uh, fight um, in the UK, which was in, in uh, Wales, which was unusual. Um, Sipman and uh, Duo Congodon fought. Uh, they fought in Thailand and they are after them in in Swansea. So a, a range of things, a range of. Uh, one time with shows every weekend, really, and I was driving. You know, sometimes drive to Scotland, did them in Scotland, and got back sleep on the car park, go to work. You know, it was that <laughs> a very much a full-time passion and, you know, yeah. slightly different now I've got a family, but then then it was like every every night training and every weekend taking fighters or referee. Yeah, living the dream, obviously. Um, and then also one of your fighters, uh, Dean James, uh, came out of uh, your gym. Can you talk about, because he was at your gym for a long time and had a decent career. Yeah. He still is. I mean, he still runs and coaches at the gym. Yeah, Dean does yeah, instrumental in, in yeah in, in doing that. And um, so Dean, it was so I was as I mentioned, I was teaching at different gyms, and uh, one was with my friend, very good friend Charlie Joseph in Cheltenham, who's uh, did MMA as well, but I was used to teach Muay Thai there. Uh, Trojan at Wolverhampton, Kirkwood Walker, was a very famous fighter at the time, asked me if I'd go and coach at the gym. And I said, look, I'm very happy to, but you have to realise these are. Uh, it's a quite a different style than you're doing. And he said, yeah, that's fine. So I, I was coaching at the time Winston Walker, who was a former world champion, Pete Crook, who was a world champion too. And at that time, so they were, they were training at that point, and Dean Dean walked into the gym at Wolverhampton. It was in um, a sports centre in, in a fairly sort of 
rough area of Wolverhampton. Um, um, and he watched Pete kick pads and he spoke to Winston and, you know, he saw the lads fighting and he, he'd had cancer. I didn't know at that point, but he was trying to get fit. His idea wasn't to come and fight. It was to say, get, train and get help recover really. And him and a friend um, turned up, um, Richard Wayne, and they both joined in. And I think they went back to another session because there were different people running sessions and they didn't quite like it. So he was almost mm-hmm. going to give up. But then persisted, came back, and, and then he wanted to come to, you know, to try to the, the other gym because I directly have to go and drive to, to a different area to teach a Pratchett Sewer gym. So I teach at Wolverhampton and drive to teach a bit later on. And he came with me and he really connected mm-hmm. with the people there. He really liked it. So whilst he did retain a connection with Winston and Pete uh, and, and Pete's brother <laughs> Reese later on, who also fought for the gym, um, he really sort of took on the values of that gym. I think the Thai influence and mm-hmm. at that point we'd been, mm-hmm. you know, I've been ties over quite regularly. So, you know, they'd be sleeping under my desk at, at uni because of the time difference and, you know, whether it be Pinching Chai Duo or, or a number of others, you know, a series of maybe 10, 10 or 12 different boxes over the period mm-hmm. coming and staying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Top Attack Wanchalurm, who runs Simbi Gym in Phuket. He's spent time with us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dean... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, his idea wasn't to fight. His idea was to train and get better and get fit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw early on that he had a, an aptitude for the sport. He was also build-wise, he was very light and uh, strong physically for his weight. And he, he also he was very coachable, so he'd listen very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a fight. Uh, you know, we organised a fight in shin pads in Wolverhampton, actually. And he, he stopped the lad very early on and he sort of got the bug, I think. You know, I think one thing is when he realised it wasn't just about, because he didn't see himself as a rough, tough guy, but when he realised he could apply, you know, it was a bit like, well, this could be a bit like physical chess and you've got these techniques, he sort of realised actually he could do well in the sport and, and you know, got really engaged in it. We, we had a, and continue to do have a really good relationship and always have over that period you know from then onwards really um his, his friend richard trained and fought as well um but yeah became you know the i guess the adage of the gym was all right from the the days of will hastings was to look i remember will he lost his first four fights ever but they were against lads who were miles really you wouldn't if you were looking to win you probably wouldn't have matched him with those fighters you there was a push the boundaries that not that he'd get hurt because he was capable but just that actually he didn't potentially have the skills to win but that meant that he didn't lose for a long 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 time after that so he lost those first four fights and that was the sort of the idea behind the gym that let's look and push the boundaries and we did that with dean so dean was fighting people on paper you probably wouldn't have put him against he was actually winning he was doing really well and he was winning he understood the scoring um and that was an advantage um he understood, you know, he'd come to Thailand with me, he understood the sport and he really got into the technical aspects of it and the way, you know, the way of training, etc. And, and he's, he was also doing some teaching in school, so he had a very good understanding of coaching, I think, you know, what, what how you connect with people. Um, and then he did a, a, a degree, which I, I didn't, I went, he did it at Wolverhampton, but I helped support his sort of final thesis, his final dissertation, which was about Muay Thai and helped him in some other ways. And we've we've had a bond ever since really. And I think he's you know, taken on taken on a lot of the, the the values of the gym. In fact he's driven a lot of the values of the gym now coaching. So yeah, that's where that's how me and Dean met and how our sort of relationship developed. Just in terms of a time period, when did he start? When were some of his high points? I know he fought Andy Hausen for the SKA title a while ago. Yeah. He did, yeah, he fought, yeah, he fought Rungavi, uh, Andy Housen, he fought a few, he's fought a few, I think he's fought about three or four, three or four versions of world titles. Um, yeah, so he, he's now, he's sort of maybe 36, um, but he was, he was 21 when he turned up to the gym. Um, initially, it took, you know, so early 20s, he was, uh, so I guess the first, yeah, his, his real first world title note was his fight against Andy um, um, in Manchester and then he, again a follow-up fight in Leeds um, but he also fought he fought on a Muay Thai uh, 
multi-council against drugs title, against, um, I think it was Vietnamese ethnically, but I think he was from Sweden. Um, and he won there on stoppage. And then he fought um, s some guys from Nassau gym, some really good fights, tough, very tough. Fight. Oh, French guys. French guys, yeah, from Nassau. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're tough lads. Amin was very tough. Um, another couple of guys he won. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One lad um, for again a version of world title in Warrington from that gym at fifty nine kilos, um, and then mm -hmm. he fought one on world multi grand uh, yeah uh, multi grand prix in London. Um, then he fought Runga V uh, on Brian Calder's Yoko show and Brian Calder's, Brian Calder's show, um, having lost to Runga V in Ireland, so he fought in the Republic of Ireland and lost on points. Uh, but he won on stoppage on Yoko. Mm -hmm. I guess his 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 latest fight he, he lost to a title. I think he, he was struggling to find fights in his weight, so he tried to move. Weight. I mean, it obviously takes away some advantages. You know, he's he's probably his best weight fighting wise and competitively. He's, he's between fifty well fifty. He's fought fifty three to fifty five. I think fifty five, but up to fifty seven. But when it becomes in the 60s, that they're actually equal, well, bigger than him physically, and I think where technically, when they've been bigger and less technical, it's been fine. But when the ties are very good technically and bigger, I think that's you know that that's always been a bit of a um, more challenging really. But he's still on the book. He's still uh, well with COVID. Obviously, I've I, you know we haven't trained for a long time, but starting now that things are lifting. Hopefully next week I'll be back at the gym and he'll be kicking pads and he wants to uh, he wants to carry on even though he's you know people are saying you know he wants an Indian summer of his career really you know so it's, um, yeah where he capitalises on some things and you know brings in some I guess that emotional maturity as you get a bit older and you know there's always a point where it's optimal and then perhaps it's a step too far so you know but he's he's still interested very much in the sport he's obviously actively coaching the sport he's a very good judge and. He hasn't refereed, but he's a very good judge. And, and good as a commentator. I've seen him explain things very well. I think he's good as a commentator too. Um, but he's yeah, still passionate about the sport and, and he does still want to fight. And so there's a couple of offers on the table, but it'll depend how his fitness, you know, how he gets in terms of fitness and how he gets in shape. Because it's been a while since he's been in really. And then sort of looking at maybe an overview of the UK's history uh, in the sport, do you think... Could you pick out maybe three or four defining moments you would say in the the sport? I think was a where we were able to get ties into the UK to compete and fight. We we have had some point before then, but I think regular people coming over and the change in the rules and access well, combined with the more free access to Thailand made a difference. That was a when people were able to go to Thailand and we we managed to get a consensus on the way that people judge the sport here was useful bringing ties in to do seminars here for those who couldn't go to thailand and they could still see it and people could explain it i think was useful um people being foreigners being successful so i mean you know particularly i think the likes of liam harrison but but also andy and andy house who fight everybody i think we, i bought some ties over at that at the show in wolverhampton and uh, duo congered on fort liam harrison um Comkit, no, it wasn't Comkit. Cantipong uh, for Andy Howson. The, the, there was a few ties over, and that they that whilst they lost, they gave really good accounts of themselves. Um, and actually, Duo then went back to work. You know, he came to, to stay with me again the following year, and, and and Richard Smith said, you know, would he be prepared to come up to to Badco? And said, yeah, definitely. So he went up to teach at Badco. He, he taught, you know, he got a good relationship with Liam and with Andy and uh, James, who, who was up there, and uh, you know, he he enjoyed his time up there. Um, and I think those experiences, you know, were sort of boosted. Mm. Um, and then how would you sort of categorize a or talk about the current uh, state of affairs in the UK in terms of the Muay Thai scene. Obviously, we have COVID, but, you know, besides that. People's ideas about the sport, you know, and I think it's, you know, and, and because they lost, Liam and Andy lost, they accepted they lost and they understood why they lost. I think that was important from before, just losing or winning and the rules being different than the Thai 
uh, fighter thought or, you know, that, that I'd refereed fights where I thought, hang on, the tie guys won clearly, but he didn't get the decision. I think it started to change then, and that was important for both the public to see it. It was, you know, debates online, and, and there was a shift. And I think that those sort of things, and, people, you know, UK fighters doing well abroad and fighting in Thailand and doing well was also important. You know, Damien Hood, I had went and fought at one uh, Rajdan Nern and won at Rajdan Nern. Then he fought a very good boxer in the, in the provinces who hadn't been beaten. I mean, smaller, to be fair, but hadn't been beaten for a long time, couldn't get opponents. And whilst Damien got battered for about four rounds, managed to stop him in the end and show, you know, I think the, the, the experiences of people. Um, so I think those were defining moments, really. The big shows coming in to the UK where promoters were prepared to put bring ties in and put make the sport look more professional and polished was a was going forward and um and and generally Thailand being um I guess more more outward facing and trying to market the sport differently also had a, an impact. I think prior to COVID it's look it's healthy. I think there's a number of there's there's, a, there's lots of shows across the UK. Um I think it's a healthy, you know, pre-COVID, hopefully it will carry on being that now things are settling down again. But uh, there's a number of, you know, number of full-time gyms uh, set up, number of commercial gyms. Some of those have fighting arms, you know, so they, they you know, some, some there is still some independent gyms. We've, we, the gym I run and, you know, well, Pratetsu isn't commercial, um, but, but a number of gyms are in Birmingham. There were lots of gyms there, some highly successful gyms, and I think that's obviously important uh, you know, for the sport, to, to, for those individuals to push it. There's a number of professional um, setups in terms of promotions, you know, the links from Yoko to get ties in, Muay Thai Grand Prix in London, but there are also lots and lots of other shows, and that's healthy. I think the idea, in a way, the idea that now it's not just a single governing body able to run it, that a promoter is able to, a bit like one, you know, where it's a promotion team or UFC, I think they're models that, that people have looked at and, 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 and sort of taken on board, really. So it's more about, you know, a particular brand and what do we do differently and how do we market ourselves? I think that's positive in a way because it means that, you know, there is development there. Um, I think, you know, people have done very well some you know some fighters uh, coming through the uk have done very well and we'll see where that goes really you know with whether they go into the one championships or they do uh, other other things that, that are you know more time max whatever it happens to be i think that yeah, yeah thailand are outward facing and you know these polished shows wherever that happens to generate from i think that's good i think it's really good for the uk to get people in there because it gives it aspires others who are coming along to see I want to be like that. You know, it's that, that spark of interest and role models that drives people to want to do the sport. And, you know, sport always changes and shifts, you know, every sport. Is, and, and, uh, uh, but, but, you know, to have that, I want to be like them, that's somebody I want to aspire to be like in all sorts of ways is, is great for the sport. And I think that's positive for the UK, positive for those coming through. And a number of outlets, they can go a, a, a lot of different places now to train. Whereas before it was much more limited. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and so, just wrapping things up, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about? No, not really. Other than you know, no, no. I think we've covered lots of things. Really, I think there's, um, you know, I think the the future for Muay Thai looks very bright. I think, you know, internationally, that's great. Um, I don't know where it'll end up in the Olympics. Obviously, it's a slightly different sport, the amateur sport, but it's still a great sort of selling point if it, never, if it does get there, you know, on a, on a, on a more sort of uh, traditional sport footing, you know, the, the traditional sports and, and Olympic funding, et cetera. But, you know, the professional sport, I think, is looking, you know, looking very healthy. There's, you know, hopefully it'll carry on getting that momentum. This is sport, obviously, it's all about funding and, you know, it needs needs different models of funding it you know whether that's online whether it's what you know but um, you know i think people now there's enough people involved in the sport to see its potential and so you know i can only see it growing in that way that's great and i think the uk seems positive hopefully post-covid things will pick back up again and you know i think i mean i do I am passionate about getting sports science, you know, and trying to get some of these things in terms of both coaching, technical aspects of Muay Thai, which I think probably a little bit falls behind some sports. So some sports have got lots of sports science support. 
um, in, in, you know, in, in the way that, you know, whether it's biomechanics or techniques or whether it's psychological support or whatever. Um, my own hope would be that some of the research we're able to do will be able to inform that and coaches can, you know, can take advantage of some of the stuff that we produce. In, um, and the more people involved, the better. And we're trying to get a, a number of ties at the moment. It's all the people who've gone through that sort of technique thing that have been European, well, basically mostly UK fighters. Um, but continue to try and grow that because I think the more people we get through there, the different people, the more we can make conclusions, draw conclusions about techniques or whether you know, based on body type. You know, so I think it differs depending on physiology mm-hmm. as well as psychology mm-hmm. and, and understanding those are quite important. But yeah, right. totally. So I guess that's a, yeah. a hope that we can inform even even better um, the sport in all ways with, with sort of science and research and awesome well thank you so much for your time tony i really appreciate it um is there a place for people to find your articles or to find out more about you and your gym yeah so there's there there is some place i guess for the articles i i probably have to update it a little bit so it's um what i'll do is i'll for i can give you the link um there is a website on judging that I that I've put together. I haven't probably updated for a long time, so I can stick the newer stuff on there. But there's some clips on judging and things on there as well that people might want to access. Yeah. So I'll give you that. I'll send you that. Yeah, I've seen it before. It's a good resource. Um, so again, uh, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Uh, great to speak to you. So a very good interview uh, with Tony. I really appreciate him taking his time out. He's a very busy man working for Birmingham University. He has the gym going, he has this and that, and he's still doing research papers. He's working with uh, Stefan Strahmeyer on several papers and definitely hope to see more academic work and studies come out from him. So a real good example for the Muay Thai community and what you can do in the Muay Thai world without necessarily having to be a fighter. Um, There are other options for people and it's really worth exploring. And he's made a lot of traction, a lot of headway with what he's done and a lot of improvements for the sport. So just want to say thank you again for Tony for taking your time out. He also has a very in-depth and informative podcast with Don Heatrick. So you can check that out. I believe it's uh, the building of champions, the science of building champions with Don Heatrick. So definitely recommend that. And thank you once again, Tony, for coming on the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you as always for listening. And once again, if you like this show and if you like the content, would be great if you could share, uh, leave a review on iTunes, and really support the show and what I'm doing here. If you'd like to reach me, you can follow me on Instagram at Lucas Thai or email me at a period Matt period Lucas at gmail.com. As always, this has been On Fighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people. This show was edited by Effie Ceruti. You can find me on Instagram at Effie underscore FC or on Facebook at Effie Ceruti.